Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Uh, so I'm David Hempton, the Dean of the Divinity School, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this special lecture. Um, the Dudleyan Lecture is the oldest and most distinguished named lecture at Harvard. It was endowed by Paul Dudley in 1750 with the princely sum of 133 pounds. Um, if it had been dollars, it wouldn't have done as well as this, but, but it couldn't have been dollars. Um, Paul Dudley was born in 1675, and after graduating from Harvard in um, 1690, is that right? They graduated early in those days. <laughs> he studied law in London, and after returning to Boston, he became Attorney General and eventually Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. Over a quarter of a millennium later, we remain grateful to Judge Dudley for his long-lasting gift that was given to Harvard. His gift is a classic example of what uh, President Faust in the Harvard Magazine has recently called um, vigorous immortality. Um, uh, it's her description of our endowment, that it's a vigorous immortality. Um, that is the gift that keeps on giving forever. Um, so our distinguished speaker this evening is Professor Kathleen Cummings um, from uh, Notre Dame University. And the title of her lecture is American Afterlives, U.S. Nation States and the Second Vatican Council. So thank you so much for coming. And following uh, Professor Cummings' remarks, we will have two responses, one from um, our HDS uh, colleague and director of the Women's Studies and Religion program, Professor Anne Browdy. Thank you, Anne. And another from Professor James Kloppenberg, um, uh, a real friend of the Divinity School and the Charles Warren Professor of American History at Harvard. So thank you, Jim, for coming. So without further ado, my colleague, Professor Catherine Brakus, another Charles Warren Professor, um, uh, this time of the history of religion in, in America, will introduce our distinguished speaker. Professor Brakus's research and her many publications focus on the relationship between religion and American culture, with particular emphasis on the history of women, gender, Christianity, and the evangelical movement. She also teaches a course on American Catholicism. Um, so it's now my pleasure to invite my colleague, Professor Catherine Brakus, to introduce tonight's distinguished lecturer. Catherine, thank you. Well, thank you for coming out on this rainy evening. Um, uh, I'm, I've really been looking forward to this lecture, and I want to say a special thanks to Frank Clooney in the front row for all of his work organizing this. So our speaker tonight, Kathleen Sprouse Cummings, holds a joint appointment as associate professor in the departments of American Studies and History at the University of Notre Dame, where she also serves as the director of the Kushwa Center for the Study of American Catholicism. Professor Cummings is involved in several important research projects. She oversees the History of Women Religious, an academic organization devoted to the historical study of Catholic sisters in the United States, and she's also the co-director of the Lived History of Vatican II Project, which explores the local implementation of the Council on Six Continents. When she is not traveling to Rome to convene Notre Dame's annual Italian Studies Seminar, 
which explores transatlantic approaches to the study of American Catholicism. She serves as a media commentator on contemporary events in the church. If she looks familiar, it's because you saw her on NBC during the coverage of the papal visit in um, September. Professor Cummings was recently voted the president-elect of the American Catholic Historical Association, so congratulations. Professor Cummings is the author of New Women of the Old Faith, Gender and American Catholicism in the Progressive Era, a marvelous book that has become a foundational text for anyone interested in the history of Catholicism and the history of women. And I see some of my students here who have read pieces, um, if not the entire uh, book. She's also the co-editor with Scott Appleby of Catholics in the American Century, Recasting Narratives of U.S. History, an ambitious book that asks how American Catholic history should change our understanding of American history. She's currently working on a new book, Citizen Saints, Catholics and Canonization in America, which explores the creation of American saints. I first met Kathleen Cummings in 1998, I think we figured this out uh, this afternoon, when I um, was an assistant professor at the University of Chicago and she was a graduate student at Notre Dame. Two things immediately struck me about Kathy. The first is her deep intelligence, which will be on display tonight. And the second is her genuine personal humility. And I can only account for that on spending, uh, she must have spent a lot of time in Sunday school and actually took it seriously. Um, so it's really rare to meet a scholar with so many gifts who's so modest about her accomplishments. So really, it's a pleasure to welcome you here. Welcome to HDS, and we're really looking forward to the lecture. Thank you, Catherine, for that generous introduction. Thank you also to Dean Hempton for this invitation, which I was absolutely delighted to accept. Um, I'd also like to thank Frank Clooney, who uh, was the, the one uh, who mediated much of the invitation, and I really found it irresistible, um, not only because of the prestige attached, long attached to this lecture, but for the particular charge for this year to reflect on the 50th anniversary of its close on the meaning of Vatican II in the particular context of the United States. And indeed, there are few periods in modern Catholic history in which the intersection between the universal and the local is as complex or as interesting as it was during the Council era. Vatican II changed Catholics' understandings of themselves, both as men and women in relation to the church, but also in relation to the society of which they were a part. And of course, for Catholics throughout the world, that society was being transformed at the same time by social protest movements, by anti-colonial anti -colonial struggles. In his marvelous book, What Happened at Vatican II, historian John O'Malley warned against taking a limited approach to the council, one that would focus only on the wording of documents without regard for context, without regard for before and after. He cautions that this interpretation would fail to see the council as the new moment it wanted to be in the history of the Catholic Church. It was in this spirit that my colleagues and I launched on the 50th anniversary of the council's opening, the lived history of Vatican II project that Catherine mentioned. And we commissioned close-grained studies of 15 dioceses on six continents and encouraged our authors to look beyond local or even national frames to adopt the kind of global perspective 
that is necessary whenever one's subjects are also members of what um, David Bell recently characterized as the world's most successful international organization, the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church. Just now coming to an end, the Lived History Project argues that the answer to what happened at Vatican II can be found not, neither in the council's documents nor in the local histories of various dioceses, but where those two, th two things converged in the lives of ordinary Catholics. This afternoon, I'm extending the insights of lived history to the subject of my own current research and viewing the council through the afterlives of three US Catholic historical figures who are pictured here. And you've probably never heard of, um, well, you may have heard of one of them, but I'll explain who they are. All of these people were being considered for canonization during the council era. Canonization is the, high, the church's highest honor. The story begins with a footnote. It's a footnote in Lumen Gentium, which was one of the council's most significant documents, the dogmatic constitution on the church. Lumen Gentium had its origins in an intervention made on the council floor by Belgium's Cardinal Leon Sunins, who was asked by the council's convener John the 23rd at the end of the first session to suggest a theme for the council that could unify it. And Sunan's proposed that the theme be the Church of Christ light to the world. He suggested that the council engage in three dialogues. First, the church with its own members. Second, an ecumenical dialogue um, in which the church would engage with its brothers and sisters not now visibly united with it. And finally, a dialogue with the modern world. Sunan's speech set the agenda for the council and led the way for the call to holiness to be one of its great themes. As O'Malley observes, Lumen Gentium said explicitly, forcefully, and for the first time ever in a council, that holiness is what the church is all about. In its seventh chapter, Lumen Gentium provided models for holiness. It listed martyrs who had died for their faith. It listed consecrated religious. But it emphasized that holiness was not only expected of those who had witnessed to the faith in really dramatic ways. All were called to holiness. As a model for this, the document cited all other saints in whom the outstanding practice of Christian virtues recommended to the pious devotion and imitation. In footnote number nine, the document referenced a 1921 decree issued by the Holy See on the virtues of John Newman, or as he would have pronounced it, John Neumann, but in, Amer in the United States pronunciation was Newman, a Bohemian-born missionary who had served as Bishop of Philadelphia from 1852 to 1860. Given that the council represented such a critical turning point in the history of holiness, it's hardly surprising that it would shape the stories of people like Newman whose holiness was actually being evaluated and measured as it was taking place. Now, according to Catholic teaching, the term saint refers to any person who, having lived a virtuous life, um, resides in heaven. Only canonized saints have had that holiness and heavenly status confirmed by the church through an elaborate process which, since the 17th century, has been overseen by the Holy See's sacred congregation of rites. Of course, it's under the final authority of the Pope, and it has been uh, since then. John Newman was one of three candidates whose cause reached a milestone during the council era. The others were Elizabeth Ann Seton, and this be, might be the name, she's the most easily recognizable of the three I'll talk about, a native of New York and convert from the Episcopal Church, 
who founded the first indigenous congregation of Catholic sisters in the United States. And the third is Philippine Duchenne, a religious of the Sacred Heart, French-born who served in Missouri between 1818 and 1852. Now, by the time the council opened, these three people had been dead for over a century. But as prospective saints, the three of them, um, their stories, their afterlives would intersect with the council, they'd intersect with council documents, and they'd intersect with council dialogues that go be far beyond a, a footnote and really illuminate the new moment that the council represented. Newman's, the first cause I'll discuss, intersected with the church's dialogue with its own members, whereas Seton um, was connected to the, the dialogue with other Christian churches and to a certain extent non-Christian religions. And finally, Duchenne represents the church's dialogue with the world. These three people had all emerged as nominees in the late 19th century for the singular honor of becoming, hopefully, the official US national patron, America's very own nation saint. Why them, among all the other historical figures? As Reformation scholar Peter Burke has pointed out, there are two places to look for the answer of why certain people, and not others, become canonized saints. First, on the peripheries, where a particular cult developed, and second, at the center, where it's made official. The periphery offers an incredibly valuable interpretive tool. Because saints become popular in particular contexts, canonization often reveals as much about the people promoting the candidates than it does about the saints themselves. By tracking America's favorite causes, in other words, it's actually possible to explore how US Catholics understood themselves as members of the faithful and as citizens of the nation and how those understandings shifted over time. Um, and in fact, when I began this project, I was really captivated by the periphery and was intended solely to focus on, on that. But the transnational turn in, uh, in American history, um, the encouragement of scholars like Jim Kloppenberg to increasingly adopt in, uh, international frames um, was part of something that convinced me to make my first terrifying foray into the Vatican secret archives and realize that um, you cannot tell this story only from the vantage point of the periphery. You need the center. And in fact, I've become rather insistent, um, ever more convinced that the field of American religious history and studying US Catholicism requires that historians be able to utilize archives in Rome. And this is just one example of a project we have at the Kushwa Center that, that Catherine mentioned. This is where we have just come from kind of a working session in the Vatican secret archives and um, we got to go on the roof, so it was rather, rather splendid. Um, it also means that you get to travel to Rome more often, so um, that's also a, a very, very good thing. When you toggle between center and periphery, you need to pay particular attention, as I've learned, to the things that connect them, the people, the events, the movements. This photograph captures all three such things. It was taken on, uh, at St. Peter's in Rome on October 13th, 18, 1963, and it captures a number of, these, of, of the people and also the events and the movements that connect center and periphery. Um, Vatican II is about a month into its second session. Pictured on the left is Pope Paul VI, who had succeeded John XXIII the previous June. The man in the middle is Francis X. Murphy, a US priest and member of the Congregation of the Holy Redeemer, also known as the Redemptress. Murphy is far better known by his pseudonym, Xavier Wrynn. 
Under that name, he published a series of letters from Vatican City in the New Yorker and became uh, the primary filter through which many Americans learned of the council's proceedings. He kept his identity a secret, even from his own conference, which led to a lot of tension. Um, he would deny it repeatedly to his superiors. He's pictured here at a rather uh, a rare lighthearted moment in, uh, for, in his relationship. Um, he is with other redemptorists at the beatification of their confrere, John Newman who had been the first person to enter the congregation from the United States. Beatification is the penultimate stage in the modern canonization process, and like canonization, it changes absolutely nothing about the person being honored. What it does change is the relationship between the blessed and his or her devotees. While Catholics may privately invoke the intercession of any person they believe to be in heaven, public veneration in the form of shrines or rituals um, is only permitted of canonized saints. Beatification permits limited veneration, public veneration, allowing it among a particular segment of the church, like a congregation, a diocese, or even a nation. In the case of John Newman, it was granted to redemptorists and to Catholics in the United States. And for the latter, the event represented as much a national triumph as it did a spiritual achievement. This beatification, in fact, transformed an epic American failure into a saintly success story. By 1963, the date of the beatification, the U.S. Church had changed a great deal from the remote missionary outpost it had been in 1886, when the Archdiocese of Philadelphia had opened an informative process on its fourth bishop, John Newman. This very first step in the canonization process is initiated by the local bishop, who convenes an ecclesiastical court to gather information about the candidate. Three judges, a secretary, and a promoter of the faith, also known as the devil's advocate, heard testimony from 47 witnesses about John Newman's life, about his virtues, and about miracles that were allegedly affected through his intercession. The resulting 1,200 pages of documentation was bound into four volumes, collectively known as a positio, and hand-delivered to the Holy See, where it would be scrutinized by the sacred congregation. This marked the first ever transferral of a positio from the US to Rome, an event of such consequence that it should, according to one witness, gratify all true lovers of our country. The fact that a citizen of this, our republic, would be considered for canonization brought US Catholics one step closer to securing a national patron, a milestone many believed was long overdue. Patronage refers to the process by which the Holy See assigns saints to groups or individuals with whom they have a particular resonance uh, by virtue of a shared profession, a state of life, or geogra geographical territory. And in Newman's case, a common geography was, in, was at stake, as it would be in the half a dozen other candidates whose cause were opened around this time. Now, technically speaking, US Catholics already had a patron saint. Canonized in 1671 as the first saint from the New World, Rose of Lima had been designated patron of all the Americas from Cape Horn to Alaska. But North American Catholics paid her far less attention than their southern neighbors did. Church historian John Gilmary Shea, in the era's leading Catholic intellectual, spoke for many when he explained that Rose was simply too far removed to be a meaningful patron. Shea insisted that US Catholics longed for a national patron who had lived and labored and sanctified themselves in our land among circumstances familiar. US bishops agreed, and in 1884, they actually sent a petition to the Holy See, to Pope Leo XIII, requesting that he move quickly in canonizing an American. 
Having models of holiness drawn from the very midst, the bishops argued, would inspire the devotion of the faithful in this country. Catholic laity were very excited about this petition. Um, one of them pointed out that the beatification of a person from American soil would give Can Catholics in the United States the equivalent of Ireland's Patrick or Bridget, or the analog of Francis Louis or Jean Vievre. U.S. Catholic saint seekers were increasingly galvanized by a contrast between their own saint-deprived culture and what they saw as a saint-saturated one to the south. And indeed, by 1870, two centuries after Rose of Lima's canonization, 16 other men and women from Central and South America had been canonized, but not a single cause had been introduced from the United States. Now, U.S. Catholics attributed this not to a lack of holiness, but rather to a shortage of resources. Shea explained, have we heard this before? Shea explained that the modern process of canonization left Catholics on the church's periphery far from its center of wealth and power at a disadvantage. Without monarchs or wealthy communities to undertake the long and expensive investigations demanded at Rome, he grumbled, it was no wonder that no servant of God who lived in any part of our continent lying north of the Rio Grande had ever been proposed. In 1890, Reverend Edward McSweeney proposed a creative solution to the problem and suggested that the Vatican actually appoint a special group of cardinals to glorify the hidden saints of countries whose people were too poor to stand the necessary expense. There was no such simple remedy for the second obstacle U.S. Catholic saint seekers believed was thwarting them, anti-Catholicism. Historian Shea lamented that in seeking to canonize one of their own, U.S. Catholics had to contend with a Protestant supremacy that held them in contempt. And indeed, there's plenty of evidence that critics of Catholicism often viewed the prospect of an American saint as a travesty, if not an outright contradiction in terms. In 1841, Robert Breckinridge had prayed that no American papist may ever be corrupt, debased, and infamous enough during his life to be esteemed by Rome worthy of being a saint in her calendar after his death. Forty years later, writing in direct response to the U.S. Bishop's petition to the Holy See, editors of the Methodist Review urged all thoughtful Protestants to beware that the movement to canonize so-called Americans reached beyond the pale of the Romish church and actually threatened national identity. What would it mean, they asked, to have men and women closely allied in race to the present superstitious masses of our country serving as American symbols? Aware that many of their fellow citizens despise Catholicism and its saints, um, some U.S. Catholics despaired of ever securing a U.S. patron. The fact that canonization smacks too much of Rome, one woman observed, made it impossible for U.S. Catholics even to venerate existing saints properly, let alone propose new ones. But by the late 19th century, an increasing number of Catholics began to argue precisely the opposite. That in promoting a saint of their own, Catholics might weave their religion more seamlessly into the American fabric. A nation saint, in other words, could potentially provide a double model, one that might not only convince Vatican officials of US holiness, but also persuade a skeptical Protestant public of Catholics' Americanness. So what's fascinating is that when you study the promotional material for all these saints, they testify um, not only to a candidate's holiness, but also to their patriotism. Um, John Newman's Philadelphia connection was particularly helpful in this regard because um, his, his promoters combined pilgrimage to his shrine with 
visits to Independence Hall or the battlefield at Valley Forge. You could do, kind of do all at once. This is just an excerpt that I won't read, but um, it, this appeared in a pamphlet that suggested that Newman's eventual beatification or canonization would rival some of Philadelphia's better known events in its momentousness. The desire to cement Newman's status as an American prompted a four decade search of uh, archives in all the places he'd lived and, and public records for proof of his naturalization as a US citizen. This is a remarkable amount of energy exerted for a document that had no bearing whatsoever on his cause for canonization. And from the perspective of the Holy See, the effort would have been far better spent preparing Newman's Positio more carefully. Officials at the Sacred Congregation were astounded by its procedural errors, improperly formatted questions, and vague answers. Of far greater concern was the substance of the cause. Canonization, after all, was meant to recognize those who had practiced virtues to an extraordinary degree. And John Newman, well, he seemed rather ordinary in that respect. Now, he had been a good person for sure, but it was far from evident that he had done anything beyond what would have been expected by any member of a religious community. The devil's advocate had a field day with this case. Um, they raised objection after objection, and the subtext was that the, the United States might have been so desperate for a saint that they nominated one who signaled a softening of saintly standards. It fell to Claudio and Alberto Benedetti, two redemptors who presented Newman's cause in Rome, to overcome these objections. And they had a great deal of, at stake in the cause. Remember, Newman is the first person from the United States to enter. And for a missionary congregation, this would validate their efforts in a significant way. Um, uh, firsts are always important in canonization, and this was a big one. These two brothers also point to what I have come to believe is another axiom of canonization. The chances of a cause's success increase in direct proportion to the number of native Italians you have supporting it. For, it's, for 10 years, the Benedettis fiercely refuted every objection with rhetorical flourishes, uh, circuitous reasoning, prolonged appeals. The debate ended in high drama when the brother's most recalcitrant opponent in the case dropped dead on his way to a crucial meeting. <laughs> Ever since, the Redemptorists have attempted unsuccessfully to be tactful in presenting this demise as evidence of divine intervention. It's true. Divine intervention or not, it did the trick. Um, this convinced, allowed the Benedettis to convince the cause to move to the next stage to be presented to Pope Benedict XV. And in 1921, he declared Newman venerable, certifying that he had, in fact, practiced the virtues to a heroic degree. In the decree, the Pope explained that the key element of holiness was the faithful, perpetual, and constant carrying out of the duties and obligations of one state in life. By this measure, Newman qualified. To the allegation that Newman's holiness was simple or ordinary, the Pope wrote that, the most simple of works, if carried out with constant perfection in the midst of inevitable difficulties, can bring every servant of God to the attainment of a heroic degree of virtue. Ordinary holiness, in other words, was no barrier to canonization. Now, having been declared venerable, um, this is the, the second of uh, the informative process, then venerable, the next stage is beatification. And that required two certified miracles. And Italian redemptors, having reached this milestone, thought he's going to be beatified within four years. Um, the miracles would be documented, submitted, and, and certified. Um, instead, largely because of American inexperience, it took four decades. Um, which brings us, at last, to 1963 and Newman's beatification. 
you can see the doc what they're presenting there to Pope Paul is the Positio, um, some light reading material um, for him. Uh, that's, that's the historical documentation as well as some relics. During the debate over Lumen Gentium, Sunans had, Cardinal Sunans had pointed out that 85% of recently canonized saints were members of religious orders, and that more lay saints would better reflect the universal call to holiness. This debate, like others in Vatican II, did not arise spontaneously at the Council. Um, in the United States, Daniel Cantwell had lamented in 1961 that Steve the plumber, or Mary the housewife with five young children, stood little chance of becoming a canonized saint according to present practice. Citing theologians Yves Congar and Teilhard de Chardin, Cantwell predicted that the church would soon search for heroic love among ordinary men and women. Another writer anticipated a saint in a business suit, picturing a statue of the first American-born saint, a smart young business girl carrying a shorthand pad. Lumen Gentium nurtured this revised understanding of holiness and defining the church as the people of God and emphasizing a horizontal rather than a hierarchical structure. It undermined the presumption that vowed religious were called to a holier life than that of the laity. If the call to holiness was universal, so too should sanctity be validated universally. It was in this context that Newman's pedestrian virtues, or more specifically, Benedict XV's decree on them, became a key text that supported that teaching. That's why he was the footnote in Lumen Gentium. Thus, Newman's afterlife intersected with what John Courtney Mary identified as the key issue under the issues at the council, the development of doctrine, or the problem of change in an institution that draws its lifeblood from a belief in the transcendent validity of the past. Newman's rather ordinary holiness, once a liability, actually became part of the council's argument that its proclamations were entirely consistent with past teaching. Newman supporters looked forward to his canonization, which would require two more miracles. They hoped fervently that it could be celebrated in conjunction with the nation's bicentennial in 1976. Um, they also kept a very close eye on another prospective nation saint who had already upstaged Newman once and threatened to do so again. Among the 11 canonized saints who died within present US borders, Elizabeth Ann Seton is the one most familiar to Catholics and arguably to non-Catholics in part because her promoters largely succeeded in their efforts to present her as an American hero as well as a holy one. And recent evidence of this surfaced last month at the White House when President Obama presented Pope Francis with the key to Seton's home in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Emmitsburg is the mother house of the Sisters of Charity, which is the congregation she founded. Born in 1774 to a wealthy Episcopalian family in New York, Bailey, Elizabeth Bailey married William Seton in 1794. In 1803, the couple, by then the parents of five children, traveled to Livorno, Italy in hope of restoring William's health. Instead, he died in quarantine outside the port, and in the process of being comforted and cared for by, his, by her husband's Italian business associates, the new widow learned a great deal about Catholicism. Now, she had been forewarned before she left New York. Her Episcopalian minister at New York's Trinity Church, Reverend John Henry Hobart, had cautioned her not to let the sumptuous and splendid worship of Catholic Italy withdraw her affections from the simple but affecting worship at Trinity Church. Hobart, I must point out, was an illustrious company. In 1801, Dudley and lecturer Charles Stearns observed that it was sensual and ignorant people who were likely to be seduced by Romish idolatry. <laughs> Four years later, Thomas Thatcher warned that Catholicism addressed itself to the thoughtless and the ignorant by a fascinating eloquence. 
Seton was indeed entranced by Catholicism's pageantry and rituals, but she also entered into theological debates over the real presence and over the question of salvation, and she was persuaded in the end that the road to salvation was through the Catholic Church, and she converted in 1805. Now, according to every biography, and there were many, published between 1853 and 1962, she paid a high price. Shunned by her friends, she was also barred from running the school she had established to support her children. According to one sketch, Seton had lived the life of a martyr from the day she was received into the Catholic Church. She was disowned by her whole family. Seton's loss of support and income constituted a new martyrdom, a new privation, a new sacrifice, a spiritual martyrdom, no less meritorious than that of blood. Cast out from New York, Seton had no choice but to search for a more hospitable home. She briefly considered Quebec, but at an invitation from Bishop John Carroll, she moved to Baltimore, where she eventually established the Sisters of Charity. By the time she died in 1921, the congregation had spread across the nation and would continue to grow. Now, um, in 1882, her cause was first proposed, um, although the informative process uh, did not open until 1907. Like other US candidates who emerged in the 19th century quest for the first nation saint, Seton's viability as a patron rested not only on her holiness, but also on her perceived effectiveness as a validation of the essential harmony between Catholic belief and US citizenship. Tributes routinely emphasized how Seton's coming of age had paralleled that of the new nation. As one devotee put it, Seton was as American as the Declaration of Independence, which was signed a few weeks before her second birthday. Seton's status as a former Protestant increased her imagined appeal to her non-Catholic fellow citizens. And her devotees were confident that US Protestants would find her appealing simply because she had started out as one of them. Her supporters touted her connections to the great American families of Bailey, Seton, and Roosevelt. And during the two Roosevelt, uh, the Theodore and FDR's um, presidency that was really ramped up, they looked forward to her future elevation to sainthood as the ultimate triumph over Protestant elites. Once Seton was canonized, those who had been so derisive of Catholics, the theory went, would inevitably rejoice in having a saint of their blood. One of Seton's most ardent 20th century champions was Reverend Leonard Feeney, a Jesuit priest and literary editor of America Magazine. In 1936, preaching at New York St. Patrick Cathedral, Feeney urged the faithful to pray more fervently from the for the canonization of an American saint taken right out of our midst. Evoking nothing, he insisted, would do so much good for the church in our country. This is in 1936. This is a remarkable thing to say. I think there are probably a lot of things that could done church could have done better in 1936, but evoking the same familiarity that John Gomery Shea had spoken of a half century before, Feeney called for a saint who would be a subject of our nation, who spoke our idiom, was familiar with our occupation, someone whose house we can point out, whose photograph we can show. Two years later, Feeney published a biography of the person he believed spoke the American idiom most fluently. St. Elizabeth of New York, he predicted, would soon rank in equal brilliance with the saints of Europe. Now this best-selling biography was only one sign of US Catholics' ardent devotion to Seton in this period. In 1931, graduates of Catholic women's colleges uh, organized a pilgrimage to Rome where they delivered a petition bearing 300,000 signatures supporting Seton's speedy canonization. 
One U.S. priest based in Rome privately confided his embarrassment over the spectacle his compatriots made of themselves, recalling the smiles on the faces of the Romans when they watched Americans bearing placards and petitions through the streets. He dismissed the picketing as a cosa americana that was simply silly. Now, officials at the sacred congregation did not use the word silly, but they certainly agreed and were far less impressed um, by the petition than they would have been by accurate documentation. It took a half a century for Seton's cause to move from that initial phase to the Declaration of Venerable, in part because her handlers in Baltimore kept missing absolutely crucial steps. Um, uh, the person, I'll, I'll just mention briefly, just to give a little bit of a contrast, this is the first American citizen, St. Francis Cabrini, and, and just to, to, to demonstrate, now Cabrini not only had Italian supporters, she was Italian, um, and she was beati uh, beatified and canonized with lightning speed. Look at this, she hasn't even arrived in the United States until after the causes of Seton and Newman and, and Duchenne were underway. Uh, she didn't even die until 1917, but she's beatified in 1938 and canonized in 1946. She was hailed as an American saint because she became a naturalized citizen, but she was no more American than, I mean, she, she was Italian. She remained Italian. And in fact, I use um, this map often to talk about this dynamic of transnational approaches to Catholicism. This is a map of her 24 transatlantic journeys, um, and she had 67 foundations in South America, North America, and Europe. You can't look at that and describe her as an American patriot, um, but that is how she was characterized. Um, but, but the fact that she had known many of the officials in the sacred congregation as a young sister really did help her cause. I'm not saying she wasn't holy, but I mean, we have to... <laughs> Let, let's move now to the Italian that helped, most helped Seton. Um, the person pictured here on the left is um, Cardinal Amleto Cicognani, who served as apostolic delegate to the United States between 1933 and 1958. And uh, once he returned to Rome, he continued to press Seton's cause. He was a fan of hers. Now, he is a, uh, his name looms large in the Second Vatican Council. Throughout it, he served as the Holy See's Secretary of State as well as a member of the Council's Preparatory Commission and later president of its Coordinating Commission. By this time, though, Americans did not need to rely solely on Italian intermediaries for assistance with canonization or anything else, as a number of their own were influential figures in their own right. New York's Cardinal Spellman, pictured on the right, also served on the Council's Preparatory and Coordinating Commission, and he also helped Seton's cause. Spellman had his big moment in the sun um, when Pope Paul VI visited the United States 50 years ago this month. Um, he visited New York, and Chico Nani was one of the people that... Um, that accompanied him. But in terms of Seton, um, in 1962, the Holy See announced that both she and Newman had passed the final stages, and their beatification was scheduled for March 17, 1963. Spellman intervened and suggested that Seton deserved her own day. This was St. Elizabeth of New York, after all, and New Yorkers wanted the, the attention on themselves. Um, the Holy See obliged and pushed Newman's to mid-June. John XXIII's death in early June postponed it further until October, which irritated Redemptress to no end, especially Murphy, who blamed female partisans. Now, his allegation of a feminist conspiracy was hard to credit, given that women would not even be present at the council's first two sessions, and after that, only 15 would join as auditors with, neither, with, with no vote, um, roughly the same status as Protestant observers, which um, it lends the title to the, a book about women in Vatican II, Guests in Our Own House. On to Protestant auditors who were present from the beginning in an unprecedented move for an ecumenical council. 
Signs of the new ecumenical spirit were shaping Seton's cause before the council was convened. In 1951, the pastor of New York's Trinity Church, so Seton's Episcopal Church before she converted, um, boasted of how uh, he had played a role in helping her become a can or close to canonization um, the, by forming her in the faith, but also strategically. One of the things holding up her, her cause was that um, the church in which she had been baptized had been burned and all the baptismal records were lost. You can't be canonized unless you've been baptized. So they were finding this documentation took a while. And it was actually the folks at Trinity that found evidence of her baptism. And a cardinal, uh, the, the prefect of the sacred congregation came and visited them and was satisfied um, with this evidence. So this is the pastor of Trinity Church, Boasting that he had played a role in it. Um, Protestant leaders attended both Seton's beatification and Newman's. One Methodist bishop, in an astonishing reversal of the aforementioned sentiments expressed in the Methodist Review, observed, we have much to learn from you Catholics, including the importance of pageantry. We have to learn that people need the thrill of ceremony. U.S. Catholics, meanwhile, celebrated Seton's beatification enthusiastically viewing it as an ecclesiastical coming of age second only to John F. Kennedy's election in terms of its national significance. U.S. pilgrims traveling to St. Peter celebrated with exuberance, no doubt prompting more Roman eye-rolling. Notably absent, though, from the festivities was Leonard Feeney. In the 1940s, Feeney had moved to Harvard, where he became chaplain to Catholic students, and he became an outspoken defender of a strict interpretation of the teaching that there was no salvation outside the church, eventually provoking censure from the Vatican's holy office. Feeney's refusal to recant led to his excommunication in 1953, and the Feeney controversy is only one instance of the lively discussion about the nature of its church, nature of the church in the decades that led to the council, and, as John O'Malley argues, helps account for the centrality that Lumen Gentium assumed in the council, and also for the vexed discussion of Catholicism's relationship to other Christians, other Christian churches, and other religions. Phoenix's excommunication was lifted, though he never recanted, uh, was lifted just in time for him to be back in the fold by September 1975 when his favorite saint was canonized in St. Peter's Square, the first American-born person so honored. And, um, and, and canonization, the banner hangs from the balcony of St. Peter's. It's really quite a moving thing. And here's the decree of canonization. And yes, Seton was canonized two years ahead of John Newman. The lady won, Murphy acknowledged grudgingly. Um, indeed, seeds of feminist discontent were more evident at her canonization than they had been 12 years before. The first Women's Ordination Conference was held in Detroit that same year, and the issue of female clergy would become a point of contention in Anglican-Catholic dialogue. Um, nurturing the, uh, that dialogue, though, was the fact that Episcopal bishops, including representatives of New York's Trinity Church, attended Seton's canonization, and um, Pope Paul in Pope Paul VI in his homily acknowledged their presence, calling it a sign of hope and a presage of even better ecumenical relations to come. So it was, it was uh, hailed as a unifying moment. Um, in the wake of, of Seton's canonization, Leonard Feeney re-released his biography. And, um, the text was largely unmodified from the 1938 version. He did re revise one, I've gone through this pretty carefully, and he revised one passage to refer slightly more politely to Orthodox Jews. That was about it. Um, but while Vatican II made little difference in the story Feeney told about Seton, the council has shaped other interpretations of her life, particularly her conversion and its consequences. 
One biography in process argues convincingly that it was not Seton's conversion, per se, but rather her relentless proselytizing among her relatives and her students that made her so unpopular among New York's Episcopalians. It's interesting, it's not that anti-Catholicism didn't exist, but that it was exaggerated. It was part of the story Catholics told about themselves. It was part of their American story about uh, canonization. So uh, with, with a different perspective, you can see that Seton may have been as culpable in terms of her own fierceness and her own convincing, er, er, being convinced that everyone she came in, in contact should follow her into the church. Um, the biography, this particular biography, also introduces us to a pre-conversion Seton who was not, as previ all previous studies had portrayed her, a person on the inevitable one true path to salvation. Instead, she is rendered a spiritual seeker in a plural, pluralist society. Tantalizingly, this biography references Seton's girlhood copybooks to suggest that by virtue of reading widely in her father's household, she had cultivated an open mind about non-Christian religions. Seton viewed Christianity as simply one religion among many and believed religion itself to be a set of rules, rituals, and habits as earthly as cuisine or fashion. This is um, from a, a biography not yet published. Seton's afterlife also intersected with the question of Catholics' relationship with non-Christian religions through one of the many US institutions named for her, New Jersey Seton Hall University. It was here that in another sign that the question of the church's relationship with non-Christian religions would loom large at the council, the Institute for Judeo-Christian Studies opened in 1953. Claiming to be the, the oldest academic institution in the world dedicated to Catholic-Jewish relations, the institute is guided by the principles of Nostra Aetate, the council's declaration on the church and non-Christian religions. This document had, had a very complicated path um, through the council. Um, it had started out as a chapter in a larger decree on ecumenism and had been envisioned as basically a plea to avoid anti-Semitism and expanded to become a document in its own right that included relations with Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims. It um, encountered bitter opposition along the way but was passed overwhelmingly and it was promulgated on October 28, 1965, exactly 50 years ago today. Now, an analysis of this is beyond the scope of this talk, and I, I defer to Frank Clooney on this, certainly beyond my own expertise. But I can speak to how it changed the lives of people like Sister Catherine Sullivan, a member of the Religious of Sacred Heart and uh, a historian and biblical scholar who had received a doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania. Both, both of these pictures are, are her. Sullivan had been an early contributor to publications of Seton Hall's Institute for um, Judeo-Christian Relations. And she attended the council um, using um, subterfuge. Um, she was not one of the 15 women officially invited as auditors in uh, this, the last two sessions. But um, she obtained a counterfeit Irish press pass that she would use and apparently would, would um, uh, had a lot of fun with this. In the midst of this, Cardinal Spellman, who was a friend of hers, offered her, offered to pay for four years of study in the Holy Land, but her congregation said no. And eventually her congregation allowed her to visit this is in 1965, provided she had, uh, on the, on the condition she was accompanied by another member of her community. All of these aspects of religious life were on the verge of absolute transformation, thanks in part to another council document promulgated exactly 50 years ago today. Perfecte Caritatis, or the decree on the adaptation of religious life, urged congregations to reflect on how their founder's vision would translate to the modern world and to adjust their missions and ministries accordingly. 
In a dramatic departure from past practice, all members of the community were to be consulted on these changes. And the search for renewal led congregations to implement a variety of structural changes, including a relaxation of the strict rules that governed convent life, such as restrictions on travel, um, restrictions on permission. Community members were permitted much more latitude in choice of ministry, living arrangements, and of course, dress. So this is the pre-Vatican II Catherine Sullivan, and here she is in 1985, pictured with um, uh, Pope John Paul II. Um, oh, <laughs> I wasn't going to put this up yet, but OK. Um, <laughs> uh, the strong social content of Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, also shaped Catholic sisters' lives. It prompted many US sisters to choose new forms of ministry and to be more devoted to social justice. Um, theologian Sandra Schneiders argues that it was women religious who embraced more creatively than other institution or group within the church the spirit of aggiornamento, a word that John XXIII had used in convoking the council and which roughly translated called for an updating to the changed conditions of the contemporary world. So you can see here um, Sister Mary Adjornamento um, as she's represented in the US Catholic press. Now, in the United States, of course, all of these transformations were happening at the same time sisters were increasingly participating in the burgeoning feminist movement. And um, no one has written more about this or understands this better than Professor Ann Browdy. As one US sister observed, Vatican II may have opened windows into the renewal of religious life, but the women's movement opened doors. These developments transformed the lives of American Catholic sisters. For Catherine Sullivan and others in her congregation, they would also transform the afterlife of their founder, Philippine Duchenne, or as everyone else called her, Rose Philippine Duchenne. Like Seton and Newman, Duchenne had emerged as an early front runner in the quest for the first US saint. She had been baptized Rose Philippine, but according to French custom, had always been called by her middle name. Though she had never actually been called Rose during her life, it became in her afterlife a particularly convenient way to call attention to the need for a US nation saint. In 1890, one frustrated saint seeker pleaded with the church to proclaim her as Saint Rose of Missouri for these United States. And in making the case that Rose of Missouri met those same standards of sanctity that Rose of Lima had, um, it became increasingly difficult to argue that they were not both canonized. Um, Duchenne's rechristening provides a classic example of how canonization can illuminate the priorities of a saint's supporters, even to the point where it obfuscates details about the saint herself. And it still drives uh, members of her congregation absolutely. Um, it, it frustrates them. There's two parishes named for her in the United States. And um, when they call, and they call the parish and they answer St. Rose, because everyone in her congregation calls her Philippine. Duchenne's cause proceeded far more quickly in Rome than Newman's or Seton's had, in part because her congregation was closely allied with the Jesuits, who were really good at making saints. Um, but her cause moved backward during the Second Vatican Council, even though she was beatified in 1940. In response to the call of Vatican II, her congregation decided to stop pursuing it at all. Instead, they would channel the time, effort, and expense formerly devoted to it to the service of the poor. There is no question that their decision not to pursue the cause derived from the sisters' worries about the hierarchical oversight doing so would entail. But this was not exclusively a feminist concern, as similar reservations had been raised on the council floor during the debate over Lumen Gentium. Reflecting the council's commitment to collegiality, shared governing power between the pope and bishops, Cardinal Sunans had questioned whether the Roman center should have, ha should have as much authority over saint-making as it had for the past three centuries. 
He suggested that the church revert to its former practice of allowing local bishops to beatify saints while retaining for the Bishop of Rome the right of canonization, the task of canonization. He also criticized the process as too burdensome and expensive and pointed out that as 90% of canonized saints came from three European countries, the process should be revised so that the canon of the saints would reflect the global church. Paul VI did implement some reforms, but it would fall to this man to completely overhaul the canonization process. John Paul II canonized more people than all of his predecessors combined. He did this in part by implementing a strategy not unlike what Father McSweeney had recommended way back in 1890, making it easier for countries with fewer resources to shepherd their saints through the process. John Paul II also adopted a more activist approach. Leaders at the Sacred Heart Mother House in St. Louis were surprised in 1983 when the Holy See contacted them with the news that the pontiff wished to canonize a U.S. sister and that Duchenne was on the top of his list. Duchenne was eventually canonized when South American alumni of Sacred Heart institutions agreed to finance the cause, which is an ironic end for a woman who had started out as the North American answer to Rose. Vatican II's no, new moment is reflected in a number of recent and pending U.S. causes, and I'll conclude by mentioning just a few. These five women, members of the Adorers of the Blood of Christ, were killed during Liberia's civil war in 1992. Their congregation, based in Ruma, Illinois, is ambivalent about opening their causes. According to one member, the congregation spent way too much money getting our founders canonized. We could have used that money to educate women. And yet, she continued, we would consider canonizing the women for the people of Liberia it would mean so much to them. Saint making, as we have seen, can be a powerful vehicle to draw people on the peripheries into the church. Frustration over women's role in the church manifested itself in the cause of one of the most recently canonized saints, Mother Theodore Guerin, a French missionary sent to the Indiana frontier in 1840. Guerin's biggest problem was the Bishop of Vincennes, who insisted erroneously that he was entitled to control over her finances and placements of sisters. After he threatened her with excommunication, unless she complied with his demands, Guerin resolved to leave. But before she did, word arrived from Rome that the bishop had been replaced. Guerin stayed. He left. On the All Saints Day after Mother Theodore's canonization, Jesuit James Martin wrote an op-ed column in the New York Times in which he celebrated Guerin's canonization and wondered what the Bishop of Vincennes thinks from his post in heaven or wherever he is. <laughs> Guerin's vindication took on a particular resonance a few years later during the Vatican's investigation of U.S. Catholic sisters, but that's another story. Last October, the first beatification took place on American soil. Um, Miriam Teresa Demanovich was a daughter of Slovak immigrants born in Bayonne, New Jersey in 1901. Poor health prevented her from becoming a contemplative, as she had wished, and she instead entered the Sisters of Charity, Elizabeth Ann Seton's congregation. She died soon after professing vows. Accounts of the new beata tout her, a Byzantine Catholic who was professed as a sister in the Roman Rite, as a bridge between East and West. And some members of her community look beyond Christianity and hope that Miriam Teresa will inspire more Catholics to explore the insights of Buddhism. Here again, we find an example of a prospective saint whose cause reflects the priority of the age in which she is and the age in which is considered rather than the age in which the saints live. It is improbable that a Slovak-American Byzantine Catholic living in New Jersey in the early 20th century would have been much interested in, let alone in participating in, let alone fostering interreligious dialogue. 
But today, it makes sense that she would be rendered that way. Vatican II has made this aspect of her afterlife possible. Since I started with a footnote, I'm going to end with one. Um, Vatican II also made possible many aspects of Pope Francis' uh, recent encyclical, Laudato Si. Um, Francis departs from the tradition of Catholic social traditions by citing several non-official Catholic sources, among them a Sufi mystic. Um, this is footnote number 159. Um, and I think, again, this goes far beyond uh, being pedantic to actually look at what this signifies. There are other interesting things in the footnotes. He cites national bishops' conferences, um, which has not been done in papal encyclicals before. It signals that he is committed to a collegiality, to shared governing power between bishops. Previously, the uh, national bishops' conferences would not have held the same weight. Um, final comment, uh, another thing about Laudato Si, um, it's a small thing, but it is the first encyclical written in gender-neutral language. Um, again, this is a small thing, um, but you know, small steps are. Um, but I think all of this is a sign that Vatican II's new moment um, that began 50 years ago is really unfolding in our midst, and it's going to take a long time to fully appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that lecture. Um, we're going to have two respondents tonight. Um, the first is James Kloppenberg who is the Charles Warren Professor of American History at Harvard, where he teaches courses on European and American thought, culture, and politics from the ancient world to the present. Um, I'm not gonna try to name all of his books and book chapters because we would be here for a very long time. Um, but I'll just say that some of his titles include The Virtues of Liberalism, and most recently, Reading Obama, Dreams, Hopes, and the American Political Tradition. His many awards include fellowships from the Danforth, Whiting, and Guggenheim Foundations, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the National Endowment of the Humanities. His current research projects include Toward Democracy, The Struggle for Self-Rule in European and American Thought, which is forthcoming in 2016 from Oxford University Press, and The American Democratic Tradition, Roger Williams to Barack Obama, which will be published by Princeton University Press. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you, David and Frank, for the invitation. And thanks to Kathy for a terrific and very entertaining paper. And thank you for your homage to the Celtics wearing Celtic green on the, the night that they opened their uh, NBA season. If the threat of a Catholic saint indicated the softening of saintly standards, I hope that these remarks do not indicate the softening of scholarly standards, but I'm going to do something a little bit different from what I usually do as a historian. I'm going to talk about a Catholic boyhood. Credo in unum deum. I thought perhaps following Barack Obama, everyone would join in at that point. <laughs> but perhaps not. 
When I was growing up, the most important part of my life was the Gregorian choir that I sang in. And when I'm in, Notre in Paris, I still attend high mass in Notre Dame on Sundays so that I can sing the Gregorian credo. Being an altar boy and training altar boys was a close second in importance in my life. I didn't realize that we inhabited a saint-deprived culture, perhaps because I attended St. Louis School in Englewood, Colorado, and then St. Francis de Sales High School in Denver, Colorado. Although I have to confess that I did not know until I was in college that St. Louis was named after St. Louis. I had no idea who St. Louis was, nor did I know who St. Francis de Sales was until I visited the French city of Annecy uh, as an adult. These saints were shadowy figures for us, even though reciting or singing litanies of saints was very much a central part of uh, that Catholic boyhood. Perhaps the reason that I was not aware that we inhabited a saint-deprived culture was that just outside the city of Denver is the Mother Cabrini Shrine on the east side of Lookout Mountain. And it was a kind of pilgrimage site. My mother, who was born a Methodist and had the faith of a convert once she became a Catholic, would bring visitors to our home up to Mother Cabrini Shrine without fail to show them this American saint. Uh, she was unaware as was I, that she was not an authentic American saint. And perhaps my predilection for transatlantic studies dates from this <laughs> early immersion in Mother Cabrini and my unawareness that I was not supposed to consider her an American. Uh, transatlantic was always uh, as much American to me as it was anything else. It was an insulated world. It was, in some ways, an isolated world. It was also a beautiful and a very comfortable world. I'll leave it to others to say whether it was sumptuous and splendid. I don't think those words would have been applied to our little parish church in Englewood, Colorado. And as far as thoughtless and ignorant, that would be hard to say. But in the middle of that boyhood came Vatican II, 1962 to 1965. And that changed everything. It was a world transformed by Vatican II. It was transformed in ways that I'm sure I'm unaware of, but I was powerfully aware of the ways in which it was transformed and in which it was made obvious to me that it was changed. Lumen gentium, light to the world. We began thinking very seriously in ways that this Baltimore catechism-trained little boy had never thought about the connections between Catholicism and other religious traditions. What had been very narrow and parochial classes in catechism changed into classes in religious studies. During my junior year in high school, I took visits to a Buddhist temple, to a Jewish synagogue, and to a Pentecostal church. And we spent a long time in my religion class talking about what the similarities as well as the differences were among these different religious traditions. In my senior year, I took an Asian studies class that was very much a class taught by a Catholic to Catholics, but we read Confucius, we read Mencius, we read the I Ching, and we talked a lot about the 
reach of the Christian tradition and overlaps and differences from other religious traditions. 50 years ago today, Nostra Aetate and Perfecta Caritatis were very much on the minds of those of us who were in parochial high schools in the late 1960s. And during those years, we stopped reading The Lives of Our Saints, The Lives of the Saints, which was a book that was in every Catholic family in which my wife and I still own, thanks to my mother-in-law, who wanted to make sure that we launched our marriage with that appropriate book. Um, Perhaps surprisingly though, several of the saints that uh, Kathy talked about are not in that book um, because they're too recent uh, for it even in its most recent edition, at least the edition that we, that we have. So when Frank Looney invited me to uh, comment on this paper on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Vatican II, I couldn't resist because I knew that Kathy was involved in the project that she mentioned briefly, the project that involves the study of 15 dioceses. I'd never heard of dioceses in the plural before, but I guess it has to be dioceses, right, uh, over six continents, the history, the lived history of Vatican II. And I imagined that we would spend our time today talking about the lived history of Vatican II. And so for that reason, I thought I would give my version of the lived history of Vatican II and how it really did transform my experience as a Catholic growing up. Then I got Kathy's paper with its very detailed and fascinating, as I said, entertaining account of a story that I had been completely oblivious to, the struggle to fill a gap that I didn't know existed in American Catholicism by seeking and eventually achieving the canonization of American-born saints. Now, that story takes me back to the pre-Vatican II Catholic Church, but it doesn't fill me, I have to confess, with any nostalgia. It reminds me that I thought then, even as a boy, and think even more passionately now, is a world well lost. It's a world in which the machinations of the hierarchy dominated, the decisions that struck me at the time as being in some ways silly, to use the word that was used to describe some of these efforts. And it reminds me of the reasons why, as John McGreevy made clear in Catholicism and American Freedom, so many American Catholics were vilified by Protestants because of the obscurantism of the church, because of its emphasis on issues that struck me even as a teenager as less important than the issues that were made clear in what came to be known as the revised understanding of holiness that comes out of Vatican II. So I know that Anne knows a lot more about the substantive issues uh, raised by Kathy's paper than I do, and so I'm not going to go into those details, but I do wanna ask two questions uh, of Kathy. And the first has to do with the transformation that Vatican II brought to women religious in the Catholic Church. I think the response of Rose Philippine Duchenne's congregation 
to the prospect that she might be canonized is telling, and it strikes me as emblematic of a much deeper and broader transformation of religious life in American Catholicism. And I want to ask whether you see evidence of that in the Vatican archives. If it's possible by, I don't know how much uh, of the time you've spent working there has been devoted to looking at post-Vatican II changes, I'm wondering if those records are available, and if they are, just how clear that transformation is, especially in the lives of women religious, but more generally in relation to the church. And then secondly, I want to invite you, ask you, plead with you to tell us as much as you think you can about the lived experience of Vatican II. I realize that the book is not scheduled to be out until 2017, uh, but I, for one, am eagerly awaiting its publication, and I think anything that you'd be able to tell us about what you and your colleagues have found thus far would be really welcome for all of us, and uh, it'll whet our appetites for the book when it's published. I have learned many things tonight, including that Jim Kloppenberg has a beautiful singing voice. Uh, I promise I will not sing. <laughs> it would not go so well. So our next uh, respondent is Anne Browdy, who's the director of the Women's Studies and Religion Program and senior lecturer on American religious history here at Harvard Divinity School, where she teaches a wide variety of courses on women's history, American religious history, and Native American religion. She is the author of Radical Spirits, Spiritualism and Women's Rights in 19th Century America, a groundbreaking book that has inspired dozens of other books and articles about both spiritualism and women's religious leadership, um, including some of my own work. She's also the author of Sisters and Saints, Women in American Religion, a History of the Religion of American Women for a General Audience, and the editor of Transforming the Faiths of Our Fathers, The Women Who Changed American Religion, the result of a historic conference that brought 25 pioneers of religious feminism together at HDS. Anne has also co-edited Root of Bitterness, Documents of the Social History of American Women, and another book, Gendering Religion and Politics, Untangling Modernity. Well, thank you, Kathy, and thanks for the invitation. It was um, uh, as grateful as I am to my friends and colleagues who invited me, the opportunity to engage with Kathleen's work um, was irresistible. So um, uh, she is well aware how inspired and appreciative I've been of her helping us to understand how uh, Catholic women engaged with um, uh, how Catholic history really has to change our story of American women's history, and uh, it's a joint project that we we continue on together. Um, it's it's really moving to hear the accounts, uh, some of which were not in the paper that we read, of how seriously American women religious took Vatican II. Um, sometimes so seriously that they did not follow through on um, projects like the canonization of their founders or, or members of their own congregations. And uh, that's a, um, an issue that I, I 
wasn't thinking about when I initially read her paper, but that I would love to hear you talk more about that it, it often seems that um, the, the, the appreciation of the spirit of Vatican II went so far among women religious that it became impalatable to the church. And, and that the, the idea that canonization could become um, unimportant could be seen as an example of that, where the people are, the women's orders are really going in a different direction from, uh, from the magisterium. Um, so to, the, to speak more directly to the lecture and uh, to the, the parts that I had the opportunity to read in advance, um, uh, I, I should say that I, I feel um, a little bit out of my depth here, and I feel really not Catholic, um, <laughs> uh, which I always feel, but now a little more than, than usual. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so I really am going to mainly pose some questions somewhat along the line of Jim's um, eager desire to hear more about the, uh, the lived practice of Vatican II. Um, but uh, by way of that, I am so appreciative of your connecting your research on the Vatican archives with these campaigns for what you call nation saints for the United States um, uh, and your attempt to see this as an opportunity to look at the connection between the periphery and the center uh, of a global church emanating from Rome. Now, um, it seems obvious to me, but not to my, I now know, um, altar boy colleague, um, that American historians are not really used to thinking of the United States as the periphery in the second half of the 20th, se the 20th century. Um, and in fact, I think the notion that Rome is the center um, from which United States Catholicism emanates is precisely what Paul Dudley was hoping this lecture could <laughs> Um, shed light on. Um, so I, I think you've really risen to the occasion on that, on that count. Um, I did find this orienting lens exceptionally helpful um, because this is really the persistent challenge of understanding American Catholic identity. As you say, the lens of canonization campaigns allows us to, quote, explore how U.S. Catholics understood themselves as members of the faithful and citizens of the nation. Um, this dynamic of negotiating the intersection of religious and national identity surfaces in fascinating ways in the quest for a patron saint, a heavenly advocate, um, specially concerned about the fate of the powerful democratic nation in which Catholics remained a minority. So my first question is, I really want to know more about this concept of a nation saint. Um, which I suspect is forthcoming in your new book. Um, but I, I'm really curious about this. I wonder if you can help us understand the quest for an American saint, particularly in light of the ethnic and national diversity of American Catholics. Um, the, the term nation in American Catholicism 
Um, I have heard most frequently in the context of national parishes, which are ethnic parishes, um, referring that, so that nation refers to the country of Oregon, the country of origin of immigrant Catholics, um, rather than to the United States. So in the, uh, what we heard today, I was particularly struck, for example, to find the great Americanizer, Bishop John Ireland, suggesting sainthood for John Newman, the advocate of national parishes, um, who encouraged Germans, Italians, and Irish to build their own churches where they could venerate their own saints. Um, so I'd love to know how um, uh, the centrality of the saints to the project of maintaining connections with the old country through national devotions relates to the challenging project of obtaining a patron saint um, for the United States. And the example that kept coming to mind when I thought about this challenge was um, when I taught in Minnesota um, at, in St. Paul, I used to take my students to the Cathedral of St. Paul um, uh, where Bishop John Ireland brought all the national devotions of the immigrant groups of Minnesota inside the cathedral and behind the great altar of the cathedral he placed what are called the shrines of the nations where the the ethnic devotions to the six immigrant groups that made up the catholic population of minnesota each had their own um, chapel where they venerated their national saint um, and uh, where there were images, uh, all kinds of devotional images from their country of origin. Um, uh, but they were behind the altar. Um, so clearly Bishop Ireland was searching for a unifying figure who could bring new Americans together. Um, and of course you've suggested that Elizabeth Seton fills that bill perhaps better than some of the other um, possibilities, but that wasn't where John Ireland was, was heading. And of course, ethnic identity remains very important in American Catholicism. Um, so I'm hoping you can, can help us understand this dynamic. The second question I'd like to raise is about anti-Catholicism. Um, which you see as part of what made the cause of American saints challenging. Um, and you have been such an important scholar in helping us understand how anti-Catholicism shaped women's history. Um, I, I really was a little bit confused about the role that it's playing here. Um, the fact that Catholics had to... Um, uh, to advance the cause of new saints as a minority religion lacking access to power and making this expensive and time-consuming task um, of advocating the cause of sainthood for a favorite son or daughter. Okay, I get that. They lacked resources. This does not excuse their lack of historical um, discipline or their uh, unsatisfactory research skills or uh, lack of documentation. I... I I don't know. You don't, I'm not going to ask you to explain that. It's simply unsupportable. Um, but nevertheless, I'm not clear exactly how you situate anti-Catholicism as a feature of this story. 
Um, I, myself, um, and this may reflect my not Catholicness, but um, I've always been mystified by the naivete of 19th century Catholics um, and this in, in um, their aspirations for what Americanization could accomplish in the views of non-Catholic Americans. And this seems to me to be an example of that, the notion that canonizing an American saint would gain the respect um, of non-Catholics for the Church of Rome. Um, uh, why did Catholics hold out such expectations when intercessory saints were one of the features that made their faith so unpalatable to Protestants? Um, why would anti-Catholicism discourage the Vatican from canonizing an American saint? Um, it seems to me it would be that anti-Catholicism would be an encouragement um, to re the, the anti-Catholicism of American culture would be an encouragement to Rome. So I would just like to understand a bit more about that. Um, my last question pertains to the way Vatican II's new moment is continuing to unfold in the pontificate of Pope Francis. Um, and forgive me if you answered this on NBC, um, which you probably did because um, we were all riveted um, Catholics and non-Catholics when Francis became the first pope to address Congress, and in his words, to speak through their representatives to the entire American people. Um, and it seems to me that this moment really engages your issue very directly of thinking about um, how the, the, the meaning of the American nation in the process of canonization. Um, Francis undertook to engage America as a nation with a distinctive identity, marking a new moment in the relationship between the center and this particular periphery. Um, the heresy of Americanism, it seems, is past, um, at least for Pope Francis. He sought, in, in his words, he really spoke directly to the American people about our national identity, saying, um, that he sought to present some of the richness of your cultural heritage, he said to Americans, um, to present the spirit of the American people, so to mirror us back to ourselves, an amazing thing for a pope to uh, undertake. Yet when he searched for exemplars of America's highest values, moral leaders who expressed both holiness and an American spirit, he did not find among them the nation saints uh, canonized during and since Vatican II. Rather, he offered, as I'm sure you all know, uh, four model Americans, two Catholic and two Protestants, none of them canonized. Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, and Thomas Merton. Um, your lecture simply makes it irresistible to interrogate this list for the concepts of holiness embedded within it. And again, forgive me if you said this on NBC, I was glued to Rachel Maddow, who was gaga over the Pope's visit and uh, was just so out of character, I just couldn't switch the channel. Um, uh, the first uh, two, figures, Lincoln and King, 
um, have been recognized with the closest thing to sainthood we have in the civil religion of the United States, federal recognition of their birth in the national holiday. Um, each is recognized for having called America to be true to its own values of liberty and justice uh, for all. Um, and Dorothy Day, while she seems well on the road to canonization, is famous for saying, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily. Um, and her biography would seem to justify this comment. Um, indeed, uh, somewhat like Martin Luther King, who students of his life have, um, have complained that the annual celebration of his life as a national holiday has required a dilution of his critical view of the United States and a distortion of his ideas as he is heralded in a flag-waving um, annual event. Um, Dorothy Day, um, uh, while it seems likely that she will be canonized, um, I can't see how she could be considered a nation saint. Um, although maybe that will happen in creativity yet um, unknown to the humble historian who only looks backward. Um, but Day never hesitated to criticize America's values or its government. She was a vocal critic of much that was considered patriotic during her lifetime and ours including the accumulation of wealth and private property and military intervention of all kinds. Uh, and she felt it as a, du a duty as a Catholic to publicly protest government actions she deemed immoral, and there were plenty of them. Um, yet, support for her cause um, shortly after her death from the Claritians um, led to the Archdiocese of New York officially opening a cause for um, a canonization in the year 2000. So I would love to hear you reflect on what it would mean to uh, canonize Dorothy Day as a saint for our time. Thomas Merton, um, there's the real surprise in that group, someone for whom there is no uh, cause of canonization and we don't expect one. Um, and maybe that's what's interesting about his inclusion in um, in the list. Um, I, I think I'll, I will stop here um, as we're all eager to hear your response with only one more footnote um, to your footnotes, which is um, that uh, I'm overwhelmed to learn that we have the first gender neutral, uh, the first papal document in gender neutral language. And I don't see that as a small thing. I'm going back to write to the document to explore this further with help from um, people who can help me understand. I presume this is, a lat is gender neutral in Latin. You'll explain this all to me over dinner, I hope. Um, but anyway, I, I think this, I mean, this seems so much in keeping with the Pope's approach of doing things he can get away with that are really um, consequential, but that kind of go under the radar. So thank you so much for that and for a really, really interesting paper.
Thank you, Jim and Ann, so much for that. Um, I think if I responded to everything, it would be a whole other lecture and maybe a couple of them. So I'll just, I'll do my best. I want to, you both hit on something that really to me is the most fascinating narrative arc of this study of canonization in, in America, which begins in the 1880s um, and is unfolding now. And, and Jim, you pointed out, you know, you, lives of the saints fell by the wayside. I mean, that one of the ironies here is that the first American-born person is canonized at the exact moment when it actually doesn't matter as much. Um, there's been a Catholic president. Uh, saints are not. Um, and something that occurred to me, uh, I, was, I was about three years into the research for this project when I realized the United States still doesn't have a patron saint, although there are 11 people who are um, from the US or territory that later became part of it uh, that have been canonized. Patronage is something, it's a separate step. It's after canonization, and it's assigned, it's, it's by a different Vatican office that makes that. So um, although after 1946, when Cabrini was canonized, you could plausibly have begun that move. Cabrini became the patron saint of immigrants in, in 1950. Um, there has been, and I have combed, you know, the, the Congregational Archives, has anyone proposed that Seton be uh, the official American uh, national saint? No, there's no evidence of it. They, at, the sacred, at the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints, which is what it's called now. So to me, this is so revealing. What had started out as, um, as a way Catholics' favorite saints in the United States were used to express their Americanness. Um, this relates to a question of yours, Anne. I mean, in the 19th century, it was all about the missionaries, the missionaries who came, not the immigrants, because the immigrants were. So um, John Ireland, which I didn't quote in the spoken version of this, John Ireland was actually against Newman's cause. Um, he wanted a saint, for sure, but you know who his favorite saint was? Uh, bishop uh, Matthias Loris, who was Bishop of Dubuque, which at, at that point, Dubuque was just an entire swath of the Midwest. So technically, Loris was Ireland's predecessor um, because it included many, many, that's another axiom of canonization. <laughs> the bishops support people <laughs> who could bring glory, reflected glory to them. So he was against Newman for that reason, that Newman had wanted to preserve German-speaking language. Um, he wanted a saint who could be unifying. So the narrative arc here is that um, from the 1880s until the 1960s or 70s, it's, it's, it's a, um, a saint who can express Americanness since then, since there are plausible candidates for this honor, all and now there are something like 55 U.S. causes officially open and lots of people being proposed, but none of them have national residence. None of them will become nation saints. None of them will become national patrons. There is no saint who could unify Catholics at this time. I mean, and, and even though the nation was, Catholics were surely divided in the 1880s by, for all sorts of reasons, there was the sense that they could be united. Someone like Dorothy Day, and you ended with her and I'll, I'll start with her. Dorothy Day, um, Cardinal O'Connor in New York, when he pro proposed her cause, he suggested, he proposed that she, she had an abortion before she converted um, to Catholicism, and he suggested that she could, should be canonized so she could be the patron saint of women who have had abortions and regretted it. There is not a shred of evidence that Dorothy Day regretted her abortion. She may well have, but she destroyed all evidence of it. This, is, this helps, this is my story. This reveals more about the age in which a person is canonized rather than the age in which it lived. To reduce Dorothy Day's life and vision to this act it is, is, is wrong, and Catholic workers point that out. Catholic workers also express reservations about 
the money that's involved, which would have been Day's concern as well. Um, nonetheless, Dorothy Day, that's a particular contingent. Look, if and I won't go, th go through all of them, I don't have a lot of time, but um, Augustus Tolton, he would become the first African-American saint. The first Irish-American saint hasn't been canonized yet. Now there's a way that it, canonization really <laughs> um, alters the things. There's no, no Irish-born person. Here's another, uh, there is no native-born male canonized from the United States. So, um, so all of these current uh, progress, saints causes currently underway, all um, represent particular elements within Catholicism rather than anyone, nobody's proposing anyone as a nation saint, I guess, is, is what, I'm, what I'm trying to say there. So it's exactly at Vatican II that changed the way Catholics related to saints and made it less important in a way. Um, it, he did not mention her in the joint session the joint address to Congress, but Pope Francis did um, in Philadelphia on, on Saturday morning mention Catherine Drexel. Um, those 482 people that John Paul II canonized, only two were American, Philippine Duchenne and Catherine Drexel. And in fact, um, I mentioned that the Holy See called the Sacred Heart Mother House and said, you know, we want to canonize well, he said, we want to canonize an American sister, not from Philadelphia. And Drexel was the one, because Philadelphia already had too many, already had John Newman. Um, so, but she was eventually canonized. So he did mention Catherine Drexel, and that was actually my favorite moment. I was on MSNBC with Chris Matthews, who had just asked me on air, do you support the church's teaching on women's ordination? <laughs> I said, so I, I came up with an answer to that, and uh, I said, um, and he said, I want you after this homily, and, and we, we got embargoed copies of the homily, but we were told, don't share it with the press, and also he might change everything, so, you know, don't. But I saw Catherine Drexel in there, and I was so excited, and I was able to talk about her. She was um, um, a, a sister founder of the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament, so he did talk about her. Um, I'm losing... Uh, uh, I'm sorry I didn't talk more about the lived history. That is not my primary research. I just supervised it all, which is a really great thing to do, to tell people what they're doing wrong as opposed to actually um, doing it yourself. Um, things like Sacrosanctum Concilium, um, the liturgy. So in the United States, we think about that as Latin or English, right? But in the Archdiocese of Bangalore, um, it's which language is it going to be in? Is it going to be in the language of the majority or the language of the minority? This became an issue. There was blood shed over that. So again, just kind of not the way we think about it. Um, there were 15 dioceses and six continents. It was heavily stacked toward the U.S. We were all U.S. historians and that Part of it was the applications. But in San Francisco, priestly celibacy became the key issue and um, uh, issues of sexuality, which is not surprising given what was happening in San Francisco. In Atlanta, it would be civil rights. Um, uh, in, in, um, uh, in, well, I, yeah, I could, I could go on about that, but um, the, the ones that I found most illuminating were the ones that were not from the United States. I mean, we kind of know in Detroit, civil rights and um, Vatican II intersected, and it's very fascinating, very good research, but it was to look at it um, outside of, of these issues. So you will hear more about this, I promise, but, uh, but not, uh, not at this moment. Um, the one thing I'll say about the project that unites um, both of your comments is um, I found it very depressing, exceptionally depressing as a historian of women. Um, when we selected the participants, we asked, we chose them on the basis of their familiar, familiarity with your individual dioceses. We didn't ask them in advance what they were going to write about in particular. And we finished the project and there are so few women and almost no sisters. 
And I was kind of under the impression, I mean, I was at, I think I met Anne at the conference Catherine had in uh, 2003 on women in religion. I was kind of under the impression that we're, we were beyond having to have a dedicated project on women in order to get women's voices or women as subjects. But I found through this project, um, they didn't, they didn't, they, they didn't surface um, in the way that I would have hoped. So that's been something that um, was, was a bit of a disappointment about that. Um, you, you were right, Anne, to be confused about anti-Catholicism. No, that was completely, anti-Catholicism had nothing to do with why the United States had no saints. Um, but they, they, they used it as an explanation. They blamed this Protestant culture of which we're a part. In reality, it had absolutely nothing to do with it. It was shortage of resources and a different priority. So you were absolutely right to be confused there. Um, I started, this book started when I was writing New Women of the Old Faith, and I found in the archives in, um, in Emmitsburg, Maryland, Cardinal Gibbons, the head of the American church at the time, Archbishop of Baltimore, urged the sisters in 1882 to open her cause for canonization. He said, we have very few uh, American saints, and it will be good for us as Americans. It will help us be more American. And I thought this was the craziest thing I had ever heard. Um, it didn't make any sense that this would actually be something that would, but, but sure enough, I paid more attention and Alan Greer's work on Kateri Tekakwita was, that really helped me understand that as well and it became a whole story. So um, yeah, it was more about the perception of it and how it became, anti-Catholicism became this narrative that, that Catholics, it's not that it didn't exist, but it, was, it became part of their American story. And I think the shift from missionary to immigrant um, it was missionary saints who were the preferred candidates in the 19th century, but by the 1930s you have Cabrini, who was a missionary. She was canonically a missionary, but she's touted as an immigrant. Um, she did become a naturalized citizen, um, and I haven't been to that shrine yet in, in Colorado, Jim, I hope to go, but um, she did become a naturalized, a naturalized citizen because she was a remarkably efficient businesswoman, and her lawyer told her she was buying all this property and she said, you gotta become a citizen. But the way it's talked about is that she really believed that the future was with America and she wanted to ally herself with that. I mean, it's nothing of the sort, but that's how she was understood and received there. Um, oh, the new moment with uh, John Paul, uh, uh, with Pope Francis, I, yeah, I probably, I, I, he evoked so many times, he used the phrase people of goodwill, which is from Vatican II. Um, I was moved at uh, Independence Hall when he asked him, he asked people to pray for him as he always does, and he said, if you can't pray for me, please wish me well. Um, and I just thought that that was, um, that was remarkable. So many things about that were remarkable. Um, and again, it's a connector. It's the way that Rome is connected to the United States. I don't consider the United States the periphery anymore. That story changed in this era as well. But it was uh, particularly poignant to have a pope who people feel so close to, they feel such proximity, and then to actually have him here on American soil and to see him in these iconic places was really quite moving. All right, I think we have uh, exhausted our, our time. <laughs> Five minutes for questions. I'll, we can talk more at, at dinner. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Laura. I'm a recent graduate here at HDS. Okay. Um, anyway, I'm from Santa Fe, New Mexico, okay. and something I thought really unique about um, this is on. Hello. Um, is that 
everyone who was talked about in these American saints were very much not from the Spanish American mm-hmm. context. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that because Catholicism came to the United States with the Spanish far before it came with immigrants from Germany and from Ireland and et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, particularly when one of the things that when, um, when U.S. Catholic saint seekers talked about so many saints from south of the Rio Grande. I mean, they talked about place names. And clearly, they're referring to the lack of place names after saints in the Northeast. I mean, it's a very, um, uh, you know, um, the, the causes of the Spanish missionaries were not open during that time. Spanish missionaries in territory that is now part of the United States. Um, and what seemed to have motivated that was the Jesuit missionaries to New France were canonized in 1930. And they had started out as being very uh, popular in the United States, but became exclusively associated with Canada. And the Franciscans opened Junipero Serra's cause in 1930, um, kind of as a, the Franciscans were here too kind of thing. Um, So I thought that was very ironic that a Jesuit pope was the one to canonize him. Um, But yes, absolutely, no, it's a very, um, that perception of this uh, culture is is a very Northeastern bias, absolutely, yeah. Rose Hawthorne, you know, the courage of women and of nuns, of all things, she faced people dying of cancer with no resources and a horrible disease and uh, met them, found them in order to do that, which also always struck me as remarkable. Uh, also a faculty member as a saint, uh, William Alfred, Professor William Alfred here. He, uh, for 50 years, it wasn't just that he went to mass at the eight o'clock at St. Paul's or was beloved by the students as Mr. Chips, but at the end of the eight, he would leave early to give money to the homeless in the back mm-hmm. of church. And when he died, the last 15 pews were went out all over Boston and Alston and so on, mm-hmm. and, and the back of the church was filled with the homeless, and a very touching thing. He was mm-hmm. mentioned on NPR, Chris Light had a show for an oh, hour oh, with God. people calling in about how he should be made a saint. Oh, that's, uh, Rose Hawthorne, um, her cause is one of the ones open right now. Um, and, you know, nobody makes that big that big of a deal that she was Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter, but because uh, she didn't die until 1926. Um, but believe me, this would have been very big in the 1890s if, uh, you know, that she would, her story would have been used, the American aspect of her story. I, I think for a saint to be canonized, they have to capture something broader in the culture. And I think what the Dominicans are trying to do with Rose is, is to, um, to really talk about her as a person who welcomed um, people on the margins, people suffering from this dreaded disease, and as a way to, um, um, my epilogue to this book is, is getting longer and longer as I, uh, as I write it, um, but um, one of the, I, its title now is called State of Grace, and it's um, causes in, based in New York, um, including uh, Dorothy Day, Rose Hawthorne as well, but including people like Michael Judge, the saint of September 11th, who will never be canonized, um, well, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say never. But um, this is the uh, chaplain at Ground Zero um, who was uh, killed officially victim 001 on 9-11. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of those days, there were many people calling for his canonization. Um, and then um, it was revealed in his diaries that he was gay. Um, he was celibate, but um, openly gay. And of course, this put a kibosh on, on the whole thing, one of the things. But he's, he's emerged, even though his, he's not officially a, can, a, 
open for canonization. Um, many people do look to him as their saint. And that's another element of this. This is, um, and that relates to something you said as well. Why do we need Rome to declare this person a saint if we know this person is in heaven and can be an advocate for us? So thank you. Okay. Oh, one, one, one more. Okay. I'll talk afterwards. <laughs> thank you all. Thank you.